Hello. Ni hao. Bonjour. Hi. Buenos dias. Guten tag. G'day. Welcome to the Husida Podcast, a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Husida Podcast. My name is Dr. Jimmy Young and I'll be your host. In this month's episode, I interview Dr. Lauren McEnroy and discuss the article LGBTQ plus youths, community engagement and resource seeking online versus offline, which was published in the Journal of Technology and Human Services in 2019. Dr. McEnroy is an assistant professor in the College of Social Work at The Ohio State University, where her research examines the impact of information and communication technologies on the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and other sexual and or gender minority adolescents and emerging adults. She explores how LGBTQ youth build supportive communities, engage in identity development activities, and foster resilience and well-being while using ICTs. Dr. McEnroy also has expertise in innovating with ICTs in social work research, education, and practice. Her work includes adapting arts-based methods for digital data collection, integrating experiential learning and simulation into online education, and implementing or evaluating digital interventions. You can find more about Dr. McEnroy on her website at laurenmcenroy.com. So we begin with the discussion of the paper, but quickly move into some of the other challenges and opportunities that are facing LGBTQ plus youth and how online spaces may hold the potential for being a safer space and resource than real life. I appreciated how Dr. McEnroy explained that often adults' presupposition is that the offline real world environment is healthier and safer, which just is not a universal truth for everyone and especially LGBTQ youth. We talked about how digital spaces afford young people in rural areas access to resources and support that they might not otherwise have in their community. We talked about online communities and resources like Project Youth Affirm and QChat Space, and the amazing work that these organizations are doing to address mental health challenges and other issues amongst the population. These online spaces act almost like a digital drop-in center where LGBTQ youth can chat with others. And so I appreciated how Dr. McEnroy mentioned that these spaces provide community because often the interventions are group-based. We ended our interview by talking about some of the challenges related to social workers and other helping professionals moving into the online space to provide services and raise awareness. Dr. McEnroy mentioned several things like funding and technical skills, technical knowledge, but also highlighted the importance of social work education, integrating more digital literacies and technological components into the curriculum. She highlighted challenges with state and international licensing laws and mentioned that the laws were really developed pre-internet and don't match how we live in our contemporary society where people tend to move or travel across borders or into other physical spaces. The final points that Dr. McEnroy makes include a call for our discipline to address the issues of digital justice and other social justice issues as they transcend technology. And I think this really is the next frontier of technology in social work and we really need to pay more attention. Just a quick programming note that I actually recorded this podcast in my backyard, so if you hear any bird noises or anything else in the background, please just excuse those. It was kind of a rough day. But the interview is fantastic. A wonderful conversation that I'm super excited for you to listen to and really hope that you enjoy this episode of the Husita Podcast. Okay, well, welcome back to the Husita podcast. I'm very excited to have with us Dr. Lauren McEnroy to discuss some of her and her co-author's article that was just published in the Journal of Technology and Human Services 
um, in, what was that? 2019. 2019. So the pandemic year always throws me for a loop. So you too. <laughs> so we'll be discussing a little bit of the article, LGBTQ plus use community engagement and resource seeking online versus offline. And I'm sure we'll delve into some other topics along this as well. So uh, Dr. McEnroy, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Well, I thought maybe we would just begin with a real quick and even basic overview of the paper, the study, kind of, you know, a little background, give just a foundation of context for some of our discussion today. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Uh, so uh, this specific paper is by myself, um, Dr. Shelley Craig, who's at the University of Toronto, uh, Dr. Rebecca McCloskey, who is uh, the Director of Evaluation at Mighty Crow Media, um, which is here in Ohio, and Dr. Andrew Eaton, uh, who is at the University of Regina. Um, and uh, it is a secondary analysis of uh, a larger uh, sample of LGBTQ youth. Um, and what we did was we, it's a geographically diverse uh, online sample from across the United States and Canada. Uh, and we essentially what we did was we compared LGBTQ plus use offline versus online community engagement and resource seeking activities, exactly what it says in the title. Um, the respondents were adolescents and young adults uh, between the ages of 14 and 29 though it should be noted that the sample skewed quite young. The average age was just 18. Um, so half the sample was uh, adolescents. Um, the, uh, the findings sort of as a quick overview is that respondents were significantly more likely to participate in LGBTQ plus communities online. So they were more likely to be participating in identity specific communities online than offline. And some of this could be simply access related, right? So kids who just didn't have access to a community agency or had transit issues, um, but it could certainly also be due to preference and safety concerns because about half the sample was in urban centers, right? So hypothetically, would not every urban center has an LGBTQ uh, youth-oriented space, um, but would hypothetically have some access to service. Um, uh, so uh, so there could be a variety of reasons why they were significantly more likely to be participating online than offline. But what we also found was that youth were more active, they felt safer, and they felt more supported when they were participating in online LGBTQ community, uh, communities and community activities than offline. LGBTQ community spaces and community activities. Um, and alongside that, respondents were more likely to seek information, support, and resources. Um, they sought those at much higher rates online as opposed to offline. So more likely to seek health information, sexual health information online opposed to offline. Um, and that is at least partially probably 
Uh, I can't say for sure, but probably because identity specific resources are hard for LGBTQ to, LGBTQ youth to find online or sorry, offline sometimes like in their schools uh, and communities, it can be tricky for them to find. So as a result of all those uh, findings, we argue that there's a need for increased attention to uh, toward online programming and resource development um, by social work and related disciplines. Um, just a one or two things that I feel like is important to note um, uh, about our sample composition. Um, one of the thing, one of the aspects of the sample composition we feel is uh, perhaps a limitation is that it was majority white non-Hispanic, right? So not super ethno-racially diverse. But one of the real strengths of the sample is um, the gender diversity. So about half of the sample in the study uh, identified as trans or gender diverse, so transgender or gender expansive or gender diverse, um, which is quite unique um, for, for LGBTQ youth samples. Um, so that we saw as a real strength. So online recruitment, has advantages and yeah, disadvantages yeah. and uh we certainly saw that in our sample composition so, so I, I thought about kind of saving this question towards the end but I, I feel like it might be fairly pertinent for our listeners who might be kind of just really curious as to the question why why do you think it's so much easier or as you found in this study with your co-authors why do you think it is so much easier for lgbtq youth to seek these resources online as opposed to offline? Well, as I said, um, definitely, uh, I think um, just basic access is is a part of it, right? So if a young person, particularly uh, an, an adolescent, right, as, as youth get older, their, their basic access increases, right? You get a driver's license, you get your own car, like all of that. Um, but uh, basic access, right, is a, is a huge issue. So um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Megan Paisley, who's at the University of Kansas, uh, a lot of her work uh, is with trans uh, young people. And she has young people who drive an hour or more, right, two hours to, to attend in-person programming when it's available, right? Because it's so essential to, to build community and participate in community for young people. Um, and uh, so, but that require in, in Kansas, obviously pretty rural, um, at least the part that she's in. And, um, and, but that requires a car and money for gas. And where are your parents going to be asking where you are for five hours on a Tuesday night, right? So, so are they supportive? Or do they even know that you're LGBTQ plus identified, right? Um, so, so all of those things, like those basic, those basic access issues, safety, is a huge concern for LGBTQ plus youth um, because familial rejection, peer rejection, violence, victimization, bullying, uh, all, all of those issues are so significant for LGBTQ youth and being seen walking into an LGBTQ agency or into a gender and sexuality alliance, a GSA, what used to be called a gay straight alliance, 
meeting at your school has risks associated with it. And then there is also the issue for, uh, if we're talking about intersectionality, so for queer and trans youth of color, um, sometimes those agencies in those meeting spaces aren't safe, right? Um, so if you are going to an agency or, or a meeting space that's um, predominantly white LGBTQ plus folks, you can experience racism in those spaces and other forms of discrimination if you're a, a queer young or trans young person with a disability, right? So, so you may not want to be that offline space is not safe for you, but online, you can find an identity specific space that in it, uh, that is available that meets the intersection of your identities. So you can find uh, an LGBTQ specific space for youth for, or for folks with disabilities, right? Or for folks who are BIPOC. Um, because those kind of uh, those kind of identity specific agencies that are at the intersections of folks' identities are only available in large cities, right? Um, so, so because youth are looking for more than just LGBTQ community, they're looking for those that those uh, communities that meet at the intersections of their identity. So. Yeah, and I like how you brought up just that idea of you know youth that are in a rural or small town, wherever they may be, those resources might not exist within their own physical uh, in real life community. So I can see absolutely how, you know, using the internet and, and finding these spaces could be a real positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now I, I do, I mean, I was kind of surprised, not surprised that about half of your samples spend more than five hours a day online. And this has actually probably gone up, right, due to COVID and everybody just being online these days. But I wanted to spend a couple of minutes, and I think this kind of is a good spot to throw this question in here about some of the things you just brought up. A um, couple, couple of minutes just discussing the, this finding in relationship to mental health, given that we know there is some research out there that suggests increased time online correlates with higher levels of depression and anxiety and there are some uh, researchers, scholars out there that argue, you know, having a lot of screen time or social media time is not necessarily a good thing. So how might your study shed some light on the use of social media and digital technologies? Yeah, uh, so what you say is absolutely true, and I don't disagree with those scholars at all uh, that excessive use of social media or any kind of technology can be harmful for young people. I'm actually... Uh, currently doing a project on digital microaggressions with LGBTQ youth, so their experiences of digital microaggressions in online environments. Um, and there's actually some limited evidence to suggest that LGBTQ youth are likely to be even more active online than their non-LGBTQ peers. Right. So because of all those issues I mentioned in their offline spaces, that pushes them into online environments because of um, because it offers them um, respite, safety, all of that. Um, and they're undeniably at higher risk for uh a number of online harms like cyberbullying, LGBTQ third higher risk for cyberbullying. Um, so I don't deny any of those things, right? Um, those are those are facts and they're the realities of LGBTQ youth lives. Um, 
But what folks need to remember, or what I encourage folks to incorporate into that view, is that um, the hostility that LGBTQ youth, uh, LGBTQ plus youth frequently soldier through in their day-to-day lives that I talked about, um, you need to remember that, right? So that is what they're experiencing in their offline spaces. So yes, they're at higher risk of online harm. And the online environment can have detrimental effects on their mental health, right? Just like all young people. But they're also experiencing a ton of risks to their mental health in their offline spaces. And as you said, their offline spaces may not offer them resources to cope with the, that. And the internet might. Um, so you mentioned depression and anxiety specifically. Um, LGBTQ youth are disproportionately likely to suffer from both those things, right? They're at higher risk of both those things than non, non-LGBTQ youth. Um, in our research, uh, in my research, um, indicates that online communities, identity-specific online communities, can offer them critical contexts for respite and coping with the discrimination and violence that they experience in their day-to-day lives. Um, and as I said, these, these are identity-affirming uh, contexts for them that otherwise could very well be unavailable. Um, And what we also know is that um, a sense of belongingness and community is really critical for uh, mitigating outcomes like suicide among LGBTQ youth, which they are at very high risk for as compared to other um, youth groups. So, that's sort of what I ask people to also keep in mind is yes, the risks are there in the online environment, but don't shut that down for young people because you're also cutting my young people off from a critical source of support. Yeah. I really appreciate that because I've had students and a number of other people bring up this point. Right. And so I kind of, brought it up just to understand this context a bit more, but there is a lot of uh, mixed research out there about this point of whether social media causes depression, you know, or uh, can lead to suicidality or or increases in suicidality. And um, they're valid questions to ask. I have, you know, no qualms with saying we need to look into this a little bit more. But I absolutely still see the benefits of social media in these online spaces for a number of different purposes. So I really appreciate what how you just framed that for us there, because you know, for a lot of folks, those resources might not exist in their tangible real life everyday interactions, but they can find them more easily perhaps online. I just just to add on to that, I I find it it's this. I don't know what it is about um, adults, maybe, uh, but the the presupposition that offline is safer in some way, right? Or that yes. offline is healthier in some way, 
right? Like that is your starting point mm-hmm. that an individual's offline environment is somehow healthier, safer than their online environment, right? So you can't start at that point universally, right? When we're talking about online experiences. So just not universally starting from the that point, I think is an important place to start when we're nuancing the discussion, which I think we're both saying we agree with, um, I think is, is really important, particularly, um, when I think about like cyberbullying, digital microaggressions, the Mm -hmm. kinds of things that I'm, I'm also interested in. Um, it's just important to think about in the context, because the other thing is youth nowadays, as you said, like the Pew internet, um, studies like they're talking about constantly online almost constantly online how high those numbers are um you also can't separate them from their online lives so um yeah it's just it's really interesting and it's one of those things that it's like it's just the medium of the way the way and where people start to interact with their communities have changed right way back before the internet and social media, it was maybe print media or um, gathering together in a pub or something like that. And so uh, it's, it's just kind of an evolution of how people connect. And with all of that, there is good and bad. So um, I want to move into this next question that I feel like kind of maybe still goes along with kind of what we're talking I do feel like that the the study results that you and your co-authors have discovered suggest there is a lot of positives to using online resources, especially for LGBTQ youth. So it gives me a lot of hope to think that social workers or the social work profession might be able to leverage some kind of online media or digital spaces in order to help. And I was just wondering, what ways do you think social workers could become a resource online? Like, are there any particular interventions or what's actually happening out there? So uh, there's actually a growing number of interventions for LGBTQ youth that are available online, um, which is a really great thing um, from my perspective. Um, And uh, interestingly, uh, COVID has created a real shift, um, I think in uh, service to youth populations generally, right? But for LGBTQ youth organizations, many have shifted their um, services online with the pandemic, right? So most frequently I've heard anecdotally via Zoom or a lot of them are using Discord um, for for that purpose, um, which uh, is, is great. I do worry long-term with the flexibility around regulations and what that might look like when the flexibility is rolled back a little bit. Um, I've also heard that many of these organizations uh, that serve LGBTQ plus youth intend to continue to provide some portion of their services online, even after they reopen. So these agencies that have never wanted to touch online services uh, suddenly have experienced them because they've had to deliver them. And they're like, oh, wow, this has real benefits, right? Or or it's um, not that the offline services don't need to go back into place because those have unique benefits you can't deliver online, right? But 
for example, um, I'm on the board of a, an agency here in Columbus. Um, and one of the things that they've seen is they can get more youth from the suburbs, right? Or from the, the area, the, the towns immediately surrounding Columbus where kids, they just can't get to the center on a weekly basis, right? So again, it's that transit thing, like the technology um, overcomes the transit thing, even just within central Ohio or just like Columbus and the surrounding cities, right? Um, so, so that's sort of just at the agency level, what I think the response has been among, among these youth oriented agencies, like, oh, even when we go back to in-person, we want to keep at least some of, some of this online delivery. Um, but in addition to that, there's a growing number of uh, intervention, online interventions that are specifically designed for online delivery. Um, and I am actually uh, involved with two of them. Um, so the first is called Project Youth Affirm. Um, and it is, uh, it was created by uh, Dr. Shelley Craig at the University of Toronto and Dr. Ashley Austin, who's at Barry University in Florida. Um, and it was originally developed offline. Um, it's a intervention which integrates affirmative practice for LGBTQ populations um, with cognitive behavioral therapy in a uh, synchronous group setting. So a live group setting. Um, it's a manualized intervention, it's, it's uh, target outcomes include uh, depression and improving coping skills. Um, it was already being adapted for online delivery before COVID hit. Um, that was actually one of uh, the things that uh, Drs. Craig and Austin were focused on, um, but it ramped up um, when the pandemic hit. And it's actually been delivered since online since. Um, since 2020, um, and they actually have two um, two articles out on on that. One of which actually focuses on some of the clinical challenges related to online live delivery via Zoom of uh, doing like group live group interventions <laughs> via Zoom, uh, particularly like, like like a structured manualized intervention. Um, and they've delivered this online in both Canada and the U.S. Um, with youth and actually with adults. Um, they, uh, they also have a parent version of this, uh, for training parents as well. Um, so that's one. Um, the other one that I'm very involved with is Q chat space, um, which is a collaboration between Centerlink, um, PFLAG and Planned Parenthood. Um, and it was cr originally created by a social worker. Uh, her name's Deborah Levine. Um, and it's essentially a digital LGBTQ center for our LGBTQ youth center. Um, so it's live, it's chat based, it's professionally facilitated. So, uh, so real quick, if yeah. it's, if it's live, does that mean like 24 seven? No, it's, okay. um, it's sort of like an LGBTQ center in that it has like group topics. Gotcha. So it has up to, it has some days are multiple sessions, some days are single sessions. Um, and it's actually, uh, so the professional facilitators come from uh, experienced staff who work at LGBTQ centers across the United States. So it's actually like, it could be a LGBTQ center in New York or an LGBTQ center in LA or an LGBTQ center in um, 
Columbus uh, that is doing it. And they're all trained in online delivery, the ones who are doing it. So it's not just let them go ham. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're chat based. Um, sometimes we have open sessions, but they're usually they have topics. Um, and they're essentially like group, right. Or like, uh, psychoeducational groups, like you have at LGBTQ oriented youth agencies, right. Where there's a topic that night that kids discuss. And, um, so I'm really privileged to be part of the evaluation team of that. Um, and we found some really promising preliminary outcomes. They're currently, uh, the article is coming. <laughs> um, it's not quite in print yet. Um, but uh, we do have a couple of articles uh, from some of the data, but the uh, one can containing the preliminary outcome data uh, is on its way. Yeah, <laughs> um, that sounds really amazing. Yeah. And one thing to notice about both those interventions, I think, that highlights one of my earlier points is they're both group-based, right? Because uh, as are many of the other interventions that have been designed for LGBTQ youth online, because like I said earlier, um, building community, right, is one of the most valuable aspects of online participation for queer kids. So um, that's what that like inevitably um, when designing an intervention for them online, you move towards a group based model. Right. So, yeah, that sounds awesome. So um, is it OK if we link out on the Husita blog to both yeah. of these services? You can provide me with yeah, some of those absolutely. resources. I'll give you links and copies of articles and all that jazz. Awesome. So definitely anybody who's listening can look at the Husita blog uh, for more resources and information related to those. That sounds really, really awesome. And also, I was going to ask, are some of those resources have like an international context or anybody yeah. around the world could get online and... Yep. So Q chat space, um, is, uh, international. Um, anyone from anywhere can participate and it actually offers a certain number of chats in Spanish. So if, uh, participants are more comfortable chatting in Spanish, they could attend our Spanish speaking groups. Um, a firm is currently being delivered in the U S and Canada. Um, I think, I'm not, there may be a couple of other countries, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Um, but there's certainly openness to delivering it, uh, in other places. Um, I'm part of an international partnership network uh, around queer youth and technology, um, that is, uh, headed by Shelley Craig. Um, and we have regional networks in Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Mexico, and just are starting one in Australia. So um, it's all around LGBTQ youth and technology and training the next generation of researchers in that area. So we have lots of partners that all over the place who'd be oh, super wow. interested. So. That is amazing. I can't believe that just sounds like an awesome amount of work that is taking place and moving forward. So definitely look forward to hearing more from that space. That's fantastic. I'm wondering now, given all of these things and it sounds super exciting, I got to come around because, you know, there are going to be some folks. There's always, as we say in the online world, the haters and the naysayers. What do you think might be some of the limitations that keep social workers or helping professionals from innovating and moving to an online space to provide resources or to create community? So uh, really practical one is money, right? Like uh, money, resources, technology, IT support, right? On a really practical level 
that is that is a challenge, right? Um, uh, what I would say is uh, platforms like Q Chat Space, which um, uh, sort of allow organizations to collaborate, right? Um, can be really valuable using pre-existing platforms where you can, I'm one of those people who loves to like, rather than build my own thing, like cobble together from, from existing things. I'm that kind of technology person. Um, but, but yeah, it's challenging. And, and if you want to do the kind of thing I'm talking, that is my kind of thing, you need some level of techno technological skill. Right. Um, so, so that, at the basic level is, is a challenge, no doubt. Um, uh, another thing is ethics and licensure. So um, the cross-border issue, cross-state borders, cross-international borders. Um, so the complexities of licensure mean you may not be able to do therapeutic work, right? So QChat space is a good example of that. It does not do therapeutic work. It's very community engagement, getting youth to feel like members of a community. It does some psychoeducational kind of stuff, but um, it does not do anything that would require licensure or that would violate like licensure across states. And the reason that decision was made was because of the way the licensure system works, which is so pre-internet. <laughs> um, and it's so, it's unrealistic across a lot of different um, domains for the way modern life works, right? For how people travel, for how people move for home and school and life and work. And so I think that is a challenge. And, and I think there needs to be some advocacy work around that yes. with organizations and boards. Uh, uh, that, that piece is so interesting. That's like a whole nother podcast episode right there, right? Licensure <laughs> and yeah. ethics. But I, I am really, I just want to say, I appreciate you bringing up some of the ethical component of all of this, because that strikes at the mission of what HUSIDA is all about. And I've mentioned this in several other podcasts, but HUSIDA is all about the ethical and appropriate use of technology for human betterment. And so really, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, y'all are thinking about that and that it is important to recognize, to provide interventions in an ethical, appropriate way online or offline. So I really yeah. appreciate that. Well, I, I appreciate your appreciation. Um, <laughs> it, but it is really, uh, it, it's, it's a challenge. And another thing I, I, th I think I alluded to it earlier is a real concern for me is so many of these agencies and just I think generally specific to LGBTQ youth agencies, but generally hopped online with the pandemic and the loosening of regulations, right? And are using platforms like Zoom, Discord, uh, all sorts of different platforms, right? And I am concerned about, do those meet ethical requirements for, for what you are delivering? right? If you're just doing psychoeducational, like community-based fun, if you, if you are going to, if your kids are playing Dungeons and Dragons with each other, like that's fine. But if you're offering like therapeutically oriented groups via discord, that is concerning. And particularly as the, as the, um, as the regulations get tightened back up again, which I think will happen. Um, so you may know better than me. Um, 
So I'm concerned about that for the, and my concern is that practitioners are unaware of that, right? And and I, I'm also concerned that they're just unaware generally. Like I have a lot of people ask me, so what platform should I use? And I always say to them, I cannot tell you that because what I tell you today may not be true of that platform tomorrow, right? May not work for your particular agency or the particular kind of service you deliver. So that is a big concern for me. And that comes to digital literacy, technical skill, yeah. right? Um, and then the last thing that I think is, again, ties into ethics is um, social workers being cautious, I think appropriately cautious of invading youth-led spaces. Um, so I don't think it's appropriate for like social workers to go into youth-led spaces and say, I'm here, like, let me help you. Um, now I can jump in and run everything. <laughs> yeah, I know how to use TikTok. Um, <laughs> not, the, not that they sh an organization shouldn't create a TikTok, right? But, but like, uh, I'm here in your space, like, trying to control it, that kind of thing. Um, but I think when social work and uh, and folks who want to like build interventions and, and offer resources and that kind of thing, when, when um, we do that kind of work, we um, should provide bridges into service spaces, right? Um, for the youth who may want them. So, so doing that kind of dance. So like I have a sexual health in, uh, resource hub for queer youth, for queer and trans youth. And so like I do like social media advertising for that or little like nuggets of information that the kids may see and they may never go to the website, right? But they learn something via social media. And if they want more information, they go to the website. So like providing bridges out for them to come if they want more, right? That kind of thing I think is more appropriate. So, uh, yeah, I don't absolutely, know yeah. Right. No, that's that is I think a great answer and covers a whole lot of stuff. Like I said, could be a whole nother podcast episode just about <laughs> ethics. I too have said to people when they're like, "Well, Zoom's not ethically appropriate for delivering, you know, mental health services," and like, "Yeah, it probably isn't." But then you look into things like Zoom, which I know there are some privacy concerns and all that kind of stuff. But there's like a product within Zoom that is HIPAA compliant for uh, law here in the United States. But so that's the same thing. I'm like, well, it kind of depends what kind of services you're going to offer, uh, how you're going to deliver. You know, there's a lot that really needs to go into considering a platform. That's the other thing for me. I cross into Canada and I get those same questions. And then it's like, I'm like, that's a whole separate set of regulations. So, yeah. Absolutely. It, All right. Well, I think we might end with just this last question. And it's a pretty big, broad question. So feel free to kind of go with it where you want. But the general gist of the question is just what's next? Um, how can social work professionals or specific agencies even just individuals, how can we move for move forward given the potential of online programs and resources? So that is a big, broad question. Um, so I always uh, think about it as sort of education and practice is related, but um, 
I think splitting it into a little bit. So I think future ready social work education, uh, future oriented social work education is, is really, really critical. So laying foundations in students now where for where the field will need to be in 10, 15, 20 years um, with regard to technology and the internet is critical. Um, and uh, across, like interwoven across training, right? Because of how, how pervasive technology already is and how much more it will be, give it a decade. Um, so I'm actually participating in that process at my own school with a futuring and um, an MSW curriculum renewal process. And it's given me a lot of time to reflect on qualities that I think are critical in the future of social work education. Um, and that kind of future ready, future readiness in a lot of different ways, but particularly with technology, with digital intervention, with, um, with where the field is going to need to be. I think that is just so essential. And I think we're, we are, I want to say behind, but we need to take some nice, confident strides forward um, pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, particularly when it comes to like young people. Um, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I don't know if you've seen or followed uh, Dr. Laura Nissen. We, I did a podcast interview with her, one of our first episodes. Yes. Uh, and I'm participating in the Social Work Health Futures Labs. These are the questions. These, this is the type of thing that we're kind of trying to wrestle with within the lab and look at this 10 years down the future. So just a quick plug for the Social Work Health Futures Lab. He did some futuring sessions for us, actually, uh, at uh, Ohio State and um, was excellent and uh, probably would recognize my name because I was the one that was all on board with the with the process uh was super excited by it um and so that I think so prepare the social work education process I think is um and and addressing that's critical but I think for current if you're talking about current practitioners for forward-thinking agencies um uh continuing education obviously um um, and it, but investment in 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 that shift into online programming, into technology, into multidisciplinarity, in 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 service in programming, um, uh, and then I think, uh, given our discipline, I honestly don't think there's enough attention to social justice as it relates to technology. So things like technological discrimination um, and digital justice. Uh, so issues like net neutrality, um, discrimination in AI or in algorithms, um, just like technology or digital justice as a as a topic in social work, it's it's not attended to nearly enough, and it's it it is it is so already so much impacting how people live in the world and um, how they receive care and how they receive services, and we are and and it's so much uh, affecting how we practice and we are not aware of it 
and we are not advocating around it. Um, and that concerns me. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I felt this way. Uh, I graduated with my PhD in 2012. And so it's been a while that I've been kind of advocating, pushing the profession into adopting and understanding technology in social work education and practice, right? And um, certainly in talking with some of the pioneers of HUCETA, like Walter Lamandola and Dick Skitch, uh, they've been on kind of, you know, this path of we need to wake up, we need to be ready to adopt these technologies. Like since the early 80s, they've been advocating for this. I feel like right now we are finally at a point where social workers are like, okay, it's here. It's not going away. We're adopting it. We're using it. And clearly COVID ex expedited that. But uh, I wonder if this is maybe like, I don't know, wave of technology adoption or what we could call it, but absolutely something that we have to now dig into, understand much better is both you know, digital new media literacies, and then ethics all around technology. And not just like, oh, the regulatory stuff, that's super important, don't get me wrong, but just like you were saying, uh, data rights, algorithmic justice, all of that stuff is like the next frontier that we really need to jump into the deep end and start figuring this out. And again, I think it ties into this need for um, a greater degree of sort of uh, or, or a more that multidisciplinarity, right? So, um, or multidisciplinary thinking, um, and and social work already has that, right? We have for forever, um, but but just with tech, for some reason with technology, we haven't seemed. There, of course, there's some of us who get really excited by that stuff, right? And I've been fortunate enough. Um, uh, so I'm building some digital, uh, digital labs at my school that are very experiential. I'm, I developed a technology course. I was able to deliver at Toronto and I'm now, um, soon to deliver at Ohio state. So like, and I have a, um, uh, uh, an administration who really understands this futuring and, and the, the necessity of, of uh, being proactive in social work education and, and very forward thinking. And, and um, I'm very involved in that process and I'm super excited by it. Um, but this sort of disciplinary, disciplinary shift to where should a social worker be? Like when Google fires its most senior black executive who is also their ethicist, like, Someone needs to pay attention to that. I think it was Laura Neeson who mentioned it in the, one of the sessions at Ohio State. But like, those are like, that is social justice. That is a social justice related issue that is very concrete. And social work should be paying attention to that, right? And we are, we are not. And as a discipline, and we are not, as you said, paying attention to data rights. We don't understand them. Mm -hmm like as a, as a discipline. And that I am very concerned about because if we're not advocating now, then it's much harder to roll, <laughs> roll back. So yeah, it's, um, I, yeah. part of it, it's, it's concerning, but it's also like such an opportunity. It is. I agree. And, 
And so, you know, that's one of the things we also say at QCD is that we're not, we are neither dystopian or utopian in our perspective. But uh, I do look at the future and think that it is bright and we have a lot to offer uh, from the social work profession. So, well, um, Dr. McEnroy, thank you so much for being on the QCDA podcast today. Uh, Really appreciated this conversation and I hope the listeners do too. Thank you for having me. It was uh, very, uh, it made me think about my own work in a new way and it was a very enjoyable time spent. So thank you for having me. The Husita Podcast is a production of the Human Services Information Technology Association. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, please connect with us on our website at www.husita.org, on Twitter at husita.org, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash husita.org. Be sure to rate the podcast and share it with your networks to help us create a world where information technology is used to promote the social good and human well-being. My name is Jimmy Young. You can also connect with me on Twitter at JimmySW. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you.